Hello and welcome to the podcast of the ISB meeting for the 22nd to 25th June 2015. My name is Alan Tashira, I'm Senior Technical Director of the ISB and I'm joined today by Stephen Cooper, Board Member. So um, welcome Stephen, what we're, we're going to talk about today is obviously the meeting um, we had in, in June for the ISB. Um, first topic on, on our list is uh, insurance contracts. Yeah, so thanks, Alan. Um, we had uh, four topics to cover on insurance. Uh, two of those were more educational. They didn't actually involve decision-making, and the board will continue discussions in a subsequent meeting. Two of them did involve uh, decisions, and they were to do with participating in contracts. Let me start with those that uh, didn't involve decisions. The first one is the interaction between the IFRS 9 uh, effective date and the forthcoming insurance contract standard. Um, many constituents have pointed out the potential for accounting mismatches that might arise through implementing IFRS 9 before the new insurance contract standard. The board is well aware of this and has been discussing uh, this uh, to, from a, both an asset side, so the implications of IFRS 9, but also discussing it from the point of view of the liability, uh, given the, the measurement approach that we have in the existing uh, IFRS 4. Uh, so the board uh, looked at uh, the complexity of deferring the effective date for IFRS 9, uh, the scope issues, the difficulties related to transfers and the like, uh, but we also discussed the potential flexibility within IFRS 4 and also the potential for us to make amendments to IFRS 4 to deal with some of these issues. So the discussion is ongoing. The board will come back in July for further uh, consideration of this particular issue. The second issue for which there wasn't decisions was about hedging. Now this actually related to the decision-making session that we've got, uh, that we had later, and it's um, to do with how one uh, deals with hedging of risks uh, within particularly a participating contract, although the paper did cover uh, other more generic risks related to insurance. And uh, the board considered a number of potential solutions to this uh, that the staff had put forward uh, the board instructed the staff to do further work on it. Um, it was an issue that we wanted to discuss before we considered the variable fee approach, which I'll talk about in a second, because it might have had an implication for whether the board wanted to go ahead with that variable fee approach. As it turned out, the board uh, was, was satisfied sufficiently on hedging to proceed and, uh, and, and adopt this variable fee approach, but nevertheless we are going to return to hedging uh, in a future meeting. So moving on to the decision-making sessions, the, the variable fee approach has been considered by the board a number of times, and we've talked about it in these podcasts uh, in relation to previous meetings. The board has decided that we will adopt this modification, uh, extension if you like, to the general model for insurance contracts to deal with these participating features. Um, it's where the CSM is adjusted to take into account this variation in the amount the insured entity will earn because of the linkage with the underlying items. It's, it's uh, effectively like having variable consideration perhaps in an IFRS 15 uh, type context. But it, uh, it has to take into account obviously the features uh, that are found in participating contracts. The board also discussed the scope for this extension. Uh, we, we looked at uh, the various criteria that we would want to uh, consider, including the linkage with the underlying items, the expectation that you will pay a substantial share of those returns on the underlying items to the policyholder, um, 
and and the fact that the the entity the amount that uh, the entity expected to pay to the policyholder should vary directly with uh, the cash flows from those underlying items. So the board agreed with the staff recommendations to adopt this approach and also the recommendations related to, to scope. And then the last decision-making session was on the recognition of the contractual service margin for contracts with participating features. Um, we, we previously discussed this in the context of non-par contracts where the board decided that we would uh, recognize CSM on the basis of passage of time but taking into account the number of contracts outstanding. Uh, the board has confirmed this approach for participating contracts as well. This was perhaps a, a more difficult decision given the more complicated nature of participating contracts in, and also particularly the, the investment management service which is effectively bundled into those contracts. Many constituents felt that uh, a recognition pattern other than straight line would be more appropriate. But for a number of reasons, and those interested can read the board paper, uh, the board agreed with the staff recommendation to uh, base the recognition of the contractual service margin on the passage of time. So those were the four issues on insurance. And we expect it back in July, I think? Yeah, so there'll be a further meeting in July, uh, particularly to look at the IFRS 9 insurance contract interaction. Okay. Well, thanks, Steve. The, um, we spent quite a bit of time on the disclosure initiative, and, and for those who follow the project, they'll understand it's actually a portfolio of projects, some, some more short-term and, and narrower, and others slightly broader in scope, leading to, at the end of this year, the publication of a discussion paper. I'll focus firstly on, on a, one of the short-term things. We have a proposal out there that um, we've received comments on to amend our cash flow statement standard, IS7, and in order to introduce two things, one is uh, a reconciliation of the financing components uh, disclosed in the, the cash flow statement. For want of a better term, I think some people refer to that as, as a proxy or close to a net debt reconciliation. It's not quite the same thing, but it's a, a step in that, that direction. The other is a proposal to introduce a disclosure requirement to help people understand some economic restrictions or barriers there might be to um, moving cash within a group, things such as tax consequences if you move um, from one cash from one jurisdiction to the other, um, or perhaps currency restrictions and so on that, that create economic barriers. Now, at this particular meeting, we discussed the feedback as a whole for I7. Um, I think um, it's, it's fair to say, as a very general step back, that was um, reasonable support for the reconciliation proposal, but less support for the uh, information around restrictions um, for reasons that will become obvious, I think, when we start to do deeper analysis in July. Now, at this particular meeting, we went a little bit further in terms of the analysis of this changes in debt, but we didn't go into the, as I said, the restrictions on cash. For the changes in debt, there was broad support from the user or investor community. Um, in fact, it was almost unanimous that this would be a step in the right direction, it would be helpful. Um, but it's fair to say that the preparer community was far less supportive. Uh, there were some that were concerned about the cost of preparing the information, and there are others, particularly in relation to financial institutions, questioned how useful the information would actually be um, to, to investors. So what the, the board has, been, uh, has asked the staff to do is to bring back a paper in July that looks at two issues. One is um, the application of the proposals to financial institutions and whether or not, in fact, it will be helpful. 
Um, the second one is uh, about the interaction of, of the reconciliation requirement um, with some discussions that took place within the leases project and just simply clarifying the differences um, b between um, requiring a reconciliation that includes some lease information as part of this but as you know, the proposal in the leases project is not to require a detailed reconciliation for, for lease movements. Um, so we expect to have that back in July. Um, the, other, the other part of the project that we discussed this week is the much broader one, and that's Principles of Disclosure project, which is going to lead to a discussion paper this year, and then ultimately, of course, the idea is to try and create a replacement for our IS-1 presentation of financial statements. Um, for those who are interested, I suggest if you go to our website and look at the meetings page, uh, Agenda Paper 11C is a PowerPoint presentation and I think that provides a nice overview of all the topics that we've been discussing over the last uh, six or eight months on the project and how they're going to be covered or how they're going to be organised in terms of the discussion paper later this year. Uh, as well as that though, we did discuss a few issues that will feed into that, um, three which I'll mention very briefly now. One is what happens when you have a change in accounting policy that is a consequence of a new IFRS or perhaps an amendment to an IFRS. At the moment, what our default is is that you need to apply that retrospectively. And in fact, most of the when each standard comes out, it will actually have that specific requirement built into it. Um, but we've noticed and we did some analysis that over the last six or eight years, um, there are quite a few exceptions to that, often for measurement, but there are, we often build up exceptions that we build, um, obviously, in the, to build into the transition, and they tend to be very specific to the standard that we're looking at. I think as a result of that, it's actually quite difficult for somebody to describe what these exceptions are, because they, they tend to be slightly um, unique, I think, for a situation. What the board's decided to do is, first of all, um, I think they've reinforced and restated that retrospective um, restatement, in other words, as if the new policy had always been in place, is the preferred approach. But they've also asked the staff to look at two things. One is, maybe we should focus um, or develop some more focused transition provisions when you have a new standard. Or secondly, if you do have exceptions, it perhaps is possible to limit the different types of perceptions so we only have one or two differences, for example. So the board staff will go away and do that. Um, the other two things we had a look at, we, the staff spent quite a bit of time looking at comparability of disclosures. This is one of the topics that um, initially there was an intention to bring that into the discussion paper, but the more we've looked at the principles that are built in our con conceptual framework and the, the exposure draft that's out now, um, and the existing requirements that we have in, in IS-1, um, the board's decided that we've got sufficient guidance on comparability, so we're not going to add anything else to the um, discussion paper on that. And the last one we looked at was non-IFRS information, or non-GAAP, as some people loosely call it. And in particular, there's a term that has been used a lot called alternative performance measures. And one thing is it can be quite confusing to people because some people see this as being helpful supplements to the IFRS financial statements. Other people see this as being quite negative and um, detracting from IFRS. Now, we initially had a look at trying to define alternative performance measures and try to restrict, put some restrictions around them. We think a better way, though, is that for those who know, last December, we released um, a series of amendments to IS-1, the Presentation of Financial Statements, 
that gives some discipline around additional subtotals, in particular in the statement of financial uh, position and the income statement. And, and we think that's the most um, effective way to proceed on this. In other words, rather than try to describe or um, tell you what constitutes bad reporting, we're going to focus on what makes good subtotals and good reporting within these primary financial statements. And I think that's the pathway that the, uh, the staff will do, take as well. And the last bit is we will be looking within the discussion paper to add some guidance on non-recurring, unusual and infrequent items as well to, uh, to help expand some of the, the guidance we already have in IS-1. Okay, thanks for that. Let me go on to revenue recognition then. Um, the board had a, a joint meeting with the FASB on revenue recognition, uh, IFRS 15. This relates to an issue which actually the board made decisions on the previous month. In, in May 2015, we discussed principal versus agent considerations. These, this is an issue that arose from the work of the transition resource group. The board decided last month to make some clarifications to IFRS 15 to make clearer the principle uh, of the accounting for principal agent. Uh, it relates, uh, of course, to the, uh, the question of whether uh, which party is going to book uh, the, uh, the, the the revenue in respect of the the sale of the goods and services supplying of services, um, and in particular whether the reporting entity is going to look at the the revenue from uh, that transaction or whether it, the 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 entity is acting as an agent and will therefore recognise a, a fee for the uh, 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 for the uh, uh, so providing the, um, uh, the 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 service of. Uh, acting as an agent. Um, so we, we clarified uh, this last month. Uh, the, really the purpose of this discussion was to work with the FASB to try and ensure that we had consistent recommendations for the purpose of the, uh, the, the, those clarifications. Um, so the board has uh, confirmed what we said the previous month. It will be included in an exposure draft that will be published in July. The FASB will uh, uh, make similar changes, but the wording won't necessarily be exactly the same. However, the board is satisfied that uh, the the intent is is to get to the same ultimate outcome. So it's disappointing that we don't have exactly the same words uh, as we did with IFRS 15, but nevertheless, we're satisfied that at least for this particular change arising from the transition resource group, we essentially will be uh, will will remain converged. So as I said, that will come out in July. Uh, there will be a 90-day comment period, which is slightly shorter than usual, uh, but that's to try and ensure that we get these changes uh, agreed as, uh, as soon as possible so that we get some consistent, some uh, certainty amongst our constituents as to exactly what the wording is uh, in this area. Yeah, and of course the emphasis here is that these are not changes to IFRS 15, are they? They're more, they are definitely clarifications and so that, that's why we're quite confident that a shorter comment period is justified as well. Yeah, they are clarifications and whilst there's a change in wording, we believe that that change in wording is to uh, enhance the usability, the clarity uh, of IFRS 15 uh, to make sure that um, our constituents uh, are best placed to be able to implement that standard. Alan, let me just finish off um, with the implementation issues before I hand back to you. Uh, the board uh, discussed two uh, implementation issues that have come out of the Interpretations Committee. Uh, one is the decision to issue a draft interpretation on foreign currency transactions. 
an advanced consideration. This also relates to uh, a revenue recognition issue, although rather different. Uh, this is to do with which exchange rate is used to translate uh, such advanced consideration. An exposure draft of that will be issued in Q3. And the other one is to confirm that we shall be issuing a final interpretation related to IS-12 and deferred tax assets uh, and unrealized losses. Uh, that's been under consideration for some time. Uh, the Interpretations Committee has been looking at the comments that we've received on the exposure and will be um, looking to finalize that. And uh, it was brought to the board to, uh, to make sure that uh, the board was in agreement with the direction that is taken there. And, and, and that is the case, and those will be uh, issued. So let me hand back to you, Alan, for equity accounting, which is appropriate given the work that you've done on business combinations over the years, because uh, this is your last day, uh, last day working for the IASB, your last podcast. In fact, it's your last hour at the IASB, given the time of day that, uh, that we're doing this. Um, Alan, you've worked on lots of different things, uh, the due process handbook, uh, effects analysis, IFRS 3 management commentary, been here for 10 years. Indeed. Out of the yeah. 14 that mm. the uh, IS has been going, so you've been a senior staff member and extremely uh, valued. So uh, take it away for equity accounting. Thank you, Steve. Um, the equity accounting. Uh, see, we, we had a look at this in uh, last week as well. Um, the this board's been having a look at this project because over the last couple of years we've had so many um, requests for interpretation coming to the uh, interpretations committee and there's a tension between IS28 investments and associates and joint ventures and IFRS 3 our business combination standard and our consolidation standard IFRS 10 and so we we have had a series of narrow scope amendments to, to IS28 in particular and some to IFRS 11 that dealing with particular fact patterns it got to the point where the Interpretations Committee said that it would be better for the board to actually step back and have a look at equity method and see whether it can address these inconsistencies in, in you know, a much more focused, um, perhaps, amendments to IS-28. So what the board has decided to do is that they're not going to step back and have a look at uh, the definition of significant influence and what makes an associate and so on, but they are going to do a limited scope project, and it's a research project, just to remind you, so this is a discussion paper phase, not necessarily a specific proposal to change the standard, um, having a look at the equity method. What they're going to do is have a look at it with um, assuming that control is the basis for the determining the reporting group, and that means associates and joint venture entities are not part of the group. That has consequences for the, uh, um, how an equity method um, might be developed. And for example, um, it's questionable whether, if it's not part of the group, that you should make adjustments for upstream, downstream sales, for uh, initial acquisition, for example, for, for differences between the, the carrying amount and your associate and their fair value at the time of acquisition. So we're going to have a look at those. And the idea is if if we can do it um, in a way that's um, focused and cost beneficial, we, we're hopeful that we can address all of these concerns that have been coming to the Interpretations Committee. Now, in the short term, it has a consequence. We issued in September last year an amendment to IFRS 10 that deals with, and IS 28, that deals with the sale or contribution of assets between an investor and its associate or joint venture. That will, um, will now be deferred in terms of the application date. Um, so we're actually suspending our work on that type of project at the moment. 
while we have a look at this uh, project to see if we can um, adjust the equity method. The other um, thing that we'll do is that we will look at the equity method as it applies to separate financial statements um, for subsidiaries because those entities are controlled. And so looking inside the entity and making adjustments might well be appropriate in those situations. So it could be that we have two different ways of characterising the equity method depending on what it relates to. And then the last thing is that if we do have a look at a wider research project, that decision will be made once we've completed the post-implementation reviews of IFRS's 10, 11, 12, the ones that deal with consolidated financial statements and joint arrangements. Um, so our expectation is that we'll con you'll start to see papers coming back to the board um, in the third quarter of 2015 and then we'll, uh, with an aim to getting a um, discussion paper out uh, in 2016. So that's, I guess, the wrap-up. Well done. So, so for once you managed to do it in one take. In that's, one take. That's Thank great. you, Steve. So I know you're still going to be connected with standard setting in your new role, so we look forward to uh, working with you there. I look forward to reading your comment letter on equity accounting when, uh, when we eventually put out a, a document. So thank you for all your work over the last... 10 years. Well, thank you, and, and um, thank you, Steve. It, uh, I'm sure my comment letters will be very favourable on anything I worked on, um, perhaps less on others, I don't know. As long as they agree with my view, then exactly. that's okay. Exactly. So, um, last thing, I just want to wish you, it's been very enjoyable doing these podcasts, Steve. Um, I think it's quite a number we've actually done over the, over the years together, um, and wish you all the well for the future and the board. Thank you. Do you want to sign off? Yeah, I need to sign off with the obligatory um, disclaimer. These views, of course, um, Steve and I uh, prevent, present our personal views. Um, they're not necessarily those of the board. The only official record of the ISB meeting is ISB update, which you can obtain on the ISB website. Um, thank you very much and uh, goodbye.